Hello and thank you for listening. This audio recording was made on Twitter Spaces on Wednesday the 15th of June 2022. Thank you very much for joining our Spaces discussion today. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Research at University College London, and it's brilliant to be hosting this discussion. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues from the Alzheimer's Society to discuss their latest grant round that sees them open 10 new schemes, all of which have been refreshed and updated to improve their support for researchers and particularly for uh, early career researchers. But before we get into that, let's meet our guests. I'm joined by the brilliant Sophie Roberts, uh, the amazing Jenny Gabrielle, and the fantastic Catherine Gray. Hi, everybody. You can unmute yourselves and say hello. 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 Hi. Great. So uh, let's do some proper introductions. Uh, Sophie, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Great. Thanks, uh... Thanks, Adam. So, hi everyone. Um, I'm really excited to be doing one of these. I've not, um, I've not been on a on a Twitter live before. So it's very exciting. Um, I'm Sophie Roberts, the senior research grants officer at Alzheimer's Society. Um, as part of my role, I help to run our grants program, handling everything from the designing of different grant schemes and the grant review process, all the way through to the management of our funded awards. Um, I've been working with Society for just over three years now um, as part of the grants team. Um, and in my time, I've looked after both the fellowship program, um, but most recently I've been looking after our PhD studentships and making sure that they have everything they need to be successful. Fantastic. And um, Jenny, why don't you go next? Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Jenny Gabriel. I'm a research grants officer working with Sophie. So we work within the same team. Uh, we do a lot of the, the grants management um, as well as some of our ECR support and things as well. So that's kind of what I've been working on. Um, I have been working on our ECR retreat, which is very exciting. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, and I'm also our fellowship portfolio lead. So um, I speak to a lot of our fellows and help them with their grants and support them as well. Uh, I myself come from an academic background, so I've kind of come into the Alzheimer's Society with that kind of experience. Um, and we've had a lot of conversations and uh, some exciting chats about um, the academic community and uh, what we can do for dementia researchers. Wonderful. That sounds like a busy job. <laughs> In fact, all of you sound like you've got busy jobs. Thank you for so much for finding time to, to talk today. Um, okay, so uh, last but not least, we've got Catherine. Yeah, hello. I'm also a Twitter Spaces noob, so this is all very exciting. I hope you can all hear me. <laughs> um, so I'm Catherine Gray. I'm the Research Communications Manager at the Alzheimer's Society. Um, I work for the Society for quite a long time. Um, mainly in the research grants team but now moved over to research comms so um our the role of our team is to sort of um spread the word about research the the research that outside society funds sort of internally um and to our donors and supporters and then um of course our researcher facing comms and we have a new research twitter account which is very exciting um i think currently a listener to this lurking in the group so um please do give us a follow as we're quite a new account and we want to spread the word um but yeah looking forward to sort of telling you all about our plans today for our new schemes 
Uh, thank you, Catherine. I have sent a co-host invitation to um, your new super research account. Um, so hopefully somebody's at the other end to accept okay. that. I'll, uh, I'll send a little <laughs> message. Great. So um, thank you very much, everyone. It's really great to have you here. As um, Catherine just said, we should point out that there's a brand new Alzheimer's Society researcher Twitter account. Um, it's there now, accepted as a co-host. Um, so it won't be speaking. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be speaking, but it, uh, we do very much encourage all of you to give that an account, a tap and a follow if you haven't already done that uh, by now. Um, and uh, that will keep that account will be used to keep you up to date and all the research news from Alzheimer's Society. So I hope everyone listening has a pen and paper ready, but if not, don't worry, we're recording this and the chat will be released into our YouTube channel and our podcast channels later today as well with uh, a proper transcription for those who uh, are unable to listen. And we have turned on captions there at the bottom. But apologies for the captions, because somebody if you see some great gaps, please do um, screen grab those. But it's already made one. It says gaps, not gas. Um, but hopefully that'll help if you if you don't have the ability to listen or if you're in a place where listening out loud isn't an option. So let's get into it. I'm sure all of you are aware already that um, the Alzheimer's Society Research Programme provides funding for all career levels across clinical, biomedical research and care research with funding for career stage grants, including PhD studentships and fellowships and career development grants. And of course, big project funding for established and independent researchers and of course brilliant things like they contribute to Dementia Researcher which uh, we're incredibly grateful for and huge initiatives like the Dementia Research Institute um, but in this call there are 10 grant programs um, however before we get into the individual calls I know an awful lot of thought has been put into structuring the grants or restructuring the grants um, so Jenny, can I maybe come to you first and ask you to talk to some of the background work that went into this round and how you've developed them? And then I'll, I'll come to each of you to contribute to that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we started to review our funding schemes, uh, we knew early on that any changes that we had to be any changes that we made had to be to the benefit of the research community. Uh, we'd heard time and time again about how hard research was being hit through the pandemic um, and the early career researchers were some of the worst had, that had been hit by the reductions in funding um, and the reductions in kind of support strategies and other things that have been normally available. So through casual discussion with researchers, we also knew that there were a lot of difficulties in progressing through the career research pipeline and how funding doesn't necessarily support um, each of the different stages equally. Uh, and that was something that we wanted to address to kind of future proof the research career pipeline. So this project started with some research. We were looking at what grant schemes were still running, um, as I know that a lot of them shut down throughout the pandemic, and identifying what we felt were gaps within the funding available to dementia researchers. So um, what we started with was talking to BHF. So we know that their funding portfolio is extensive, so we were finding out how their grants relate to each of the career stages. Um, alongside this, we spent a lot of time, time, <laughs> time trying to map the clinical research pipeline. So this actually turned into a huge undertaking. Um, I don't think we 
really appreciated before quite how challenging it can be for clinical staff to enter to the research sphere. So and this isn't just for doctors, it's for nurses and allied health professionals too. So um, from this from that kind of aspect, we realised that uh, we really needed to do more to support our clinical uh, researchers and pathways into clinical research, as well as our ECR focus. Um, so this then led us to speak to a lot of researchers. So we were talking to people across the biomedical, the care, the clinical research spheres. Um, we set up roundtable discussions with participants ranging from junior fellows to um, world leaders in dementia research. And we were talking to them about support and funding and what is available um, for helping researchers throughout their careers. Um, we also spoke to our newly developed research strategy council. So these are a group of very established researchers um, who help us within the society. And they were extremely supportive of this work and they really acknowledged that um, ECRs do need a lot more support and a lot more help. Um, we spoke to other funders, um, BHF, as I've mentioned, as well as um, Diabetes UK, NIHR. Uh, I won't name them all, but we've spoken to quite a few. Um, and we recorded a lot of feedback to see where these major gaps were uh, within the dementia research funding um, and to discuss with them how other funders were supporting their researchers um, and to see if there was anything that we could learn and we could implement as well. Um, so overall, this has led to our new grant round. Um, we've designed this to try and fill some of the gaps and to do our bit to help future-proof the research career pipeline. Uh, what we've really tried to achieve here is redesign our grants to offer support for every career stage, um, but also make sure that what our grants provide is enough to help ECRs progress through their careers, to ensure that they aren't being held back by a lack of opportunity, by lack of circumstances, um, and just allow researchers to do the best research that they can, really. Caught me off guard there. <laughs> Still muted. So that that wow, that's a massive undertaking then. So you you've actually had early career researchers as well involved in this discussion about about how the previous schemes could be improved. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Have you got anything you wanted to um to add to that, um, Catherine? Um. Yeah, I think. Um... Obviously, Jenny's talked about sort of the background that we did um, for this project and sort of the consultation we've sort of undertaken over the last year, 18 months or so. But I think, you know, want to highlight as well that we're really proud of our history of supporting early career researchers since we started funding research um, almost 30 years ago. So shout out to Professor Nick Fox, one of our first fellows. <laughs> um, and... You know, we reaffirmed our commitment in 2014 by establishing our Dementia Research Leaders Programme. So we're really, you know, in addition to all the work that we've done over the last 18 months, we are building on that history that we're really proud of. And, um, you know, obviously we're going to get into the details of these really exciting new schemes that we've launched this week or just last week. Um, but we really want to take all of our work in sort of the early career researcher space to the next level, really, and be really ambitious and bold about what we can do to support um, dementia researchers throughout their careers. And we want to be known as the best funder of early career researchers in the UK. And that's not just for dementia. So we're being super bold <laughs> um, about attracting and retaining the best ECRs into dementia research. And as Jenny said, we don't want to just give funding to do the bare minimum. We want to provide enough funding for you know early career researchers to really develop ideas think big um and progress you know through their career stages um and another approach that we're taking um now is looking at you know we can't do this all by ourselves <laughs> you know we're we're only one team um you know so how can we work in partnership um 
as part of the new schemes, we launched a partnership with Daphne Jackson Trust, and um, we'll talk a little bit more about that fellowship later. But we're also working alongside NIHR, the Royal Society of Medicine, and sort of exploring more partnerships at the moment to sort of really maximise what we're doing and sort of link into other people's networks as well. Um, oh, that's, I mean, that's great, isn't it? Because I think this is the, you know, fellowships and things like that are expensive and being able to co-fund that while attracting people to dementia research, potentially people from who've been working in other fields as well is is a way that we can grow our community. Yeah, definitely. And it's about promoting dementia as an option to a lot of people, you know, and it, it's not... It, Unfortunately, it's it's not had quite the profile that some other conditions have had, and it's not been seen as sort of as attractive or well funded. And you know, there are lots of wider issues why that's the case. And I think you know, we really want to change that perception and and draw people in. And I think it goes beyond funding as well. We also want our approach as a funder to be really flexible and inclusive. And that's my nice segue to <laughs> handing over to Sophie, who's going to talk a little bit more about our sort of approach. Go on, Sophie. <laughs> Sorry, Adam, I, no, I no, stole no, your line there. <laughs> no, it's absolutely perfect. That's what I like. So, thanks, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the, one of the things I'm most proud of um, as part of our program is that we really do take this flexible approach to funding and, and, and addressing some of those issues that um, occur for equality, diversity and inclusion. So um, we work with all of our grant holders to find the, sort of the really the best way of working for them. Um, whether that's shifting to part-time work to cope with the demands of um, caring responsibilities. And, and of course, that's not just childcare, but all kinds of caring responsibilities, including for parents and, and, and others as well. So um, we, we want to make sure that they have the, the right kind of support for them. Um, we have a number of policies um, that we've developed over the last few years um, relating to things like maternity, paternity, adoption, um, shared parental leave, um, as well as sick leave. And, and I guess to note there, what, um, what I think is so important is um, for PhD students, because a lot of the times um, they're actually really left out of um, the sort of like care and support that's offered at universities because they're not technically classed as staff, despite the fact that they do an inordinate amount of work um, uh, for universities. But um, we have a special policy for them um, that makes sure that they're covered um, with the statutory leave um, for for their um, caring responsibilities as well, which is um, uh, which I'm super proud of. Um, and outside of that, we're also trialing um, childcare support for our funded researchers to attend our conferences. Um, we'll be we'll be running this for the first time um, at the end of June, so um, hopefully we'll get some good data back from that and, and be able to roll that out to to our conferences again. Um, basically, we just want to make sure that we're um, taking off some of the pressure from our researchers so that they can get the most out of their time in our funding program, um, while also maintaining their sort of mental and physical health. Um, we have tons of options um, available if you uh, want to find out some more on that. We've got loads of resources on our website, as well as um, a recently recorded webinar with um, Dr. Natalie Marchant um, about our flexible funding. So um, give that one a listen. But um, we've made some major changes to our grant schemes um, that we'll believe will address some of these barriers that early career um, as they tread their path to independence. So. Um, as we've mentioned, I'm especially excited about the Daphne Tracks and Trust Fellowship, um, which is launching this year. Um, I'm I'm super passionate about uh, EDNI, and and I'm really excited to continue our work in this space um, over the next sort of year. I think that's great. I mean, recognizing that that 
careers all change, right? And, and one size doesn't fit all. And if we want to um, both attract new people and retain them, having funding which is which is flexible to individual needs and people who still want to have a life outside academia which i know is breaking the rules but um but also in clinical work i think particularly in clinical it's quite hard i mean the nhs is in the uk is stressed right now and trying to escape from your day job to to think about research um is tricky but so it's even more important to have the right uh, funding in place, but great that you're not just thinking of this as a funding distributor, but as a as a place where you can get support and things as well, which is great. And, and not, of course, this is something that all UK funders, I know the Wellcome Trust and Alzheimer's Research UK and others have been looking at how they can better support people. So fantastic to see Alzheimer's Society doing this as, uh, as well and leading the way with some brilliant new schemes, which we're going to come to in, in in a few minutes so awesome to hear about all the thought that's gone into this um as our regular podcast listeners will know i chair the i start peer to support early career researchers and a few months ago we published the results of a massive survey which looked at the lives and careers and challenges for early career researchers and inflexible funding programs short-term contracts career uncertainty were all massive issues that contributed to losing researchers so having Alzheimer's Society really take that to heart. I'm not saying that you change because of our survey, but it's great to see that this is this is happening because it really does get to the core of addressing some of the issues that we know have been raised in the past. Uh, so it's time to give our listeners the information that they actually came here for. We're 20 minutes in and they've just had the, the background. So let's talk about the individual calls. Uh, and then at the end, there'll be a chance for everybody to uh, ask questions. And while you're listening, feel free to click the tweets that are tagged at the top of the space where you'll find uh, a link to the new Twitter account for Alzheimer's Research, uh, Society Research, uh, some listings of all the grant calls uh, and the chat we were just saying about the new um, Daphne Jackson Trust as well. So, Sophie, um, I'm going to come to you first because you've nicely grouped these on your website, which makes my job as the host of this a little bit easier. Um, so tell us about the PhD schemes to start with. Of course. Um, so I guess I won't go into the sort of nitty gritty uh, details of each of these schemes, but um, I wanted to touch upon a sort of major change we've made to our PhD program. Um, currently, we offer uh, two standalone uh, PhD funding grant options, um, which includes our regular PhD studentship for sort of promising graduates who are looking to undertake a PhD in dementia-related topics, um, and then our clinician and healthcare professionals training fellowship, um, which is aimed at clinicians or allied health professionals um, from all sorts of backgrounds who um, who would like to venture into dementia research as well. Um, and the third option that we have for um, for our PhD studentships is our clinical training partnerships. Um, our clinical training partnerships are available to institutions um, that have the capacity and infrastructure to support two or potentially three clinical PhD candidates um, at once. 
we sort of recognize that the day-to-day reality, and as you mentioned, Adam, uh, for many practicing sort of clinicians and healthcare practitioners, um, meant that they probably had a lot less time to apply um, directly for funding themselves. And so we designed the scheme to allow prospective supervisors to apply for the funding of multiple projects um, and appoint the fellows to undertake their PhDs after the application was funded. Um, And this is a really nice one as um, you come in sort of like a cohort, which is um, really lovely. But um, our regular PhD2 fundings, the PhD Studentship and the Clinician Healthcare Professionals Training Fellowship, a mouthful, We've we've overhauled um, those two grants to make them a lot more competitive um, and and much more helpful, I think. So um, I guess one of the things that we noticed over the past uh, few years is that the standard three-year funding model, which is common for PhDs, um, wasn't really working. Um, We had loads of requests for extensions, and and, and actually it it made more sense that we followed the four years of funding. um, from from this round on, we will be offering, um, as part of those PhD schemes, um, four years of full funding. Um, and and I guess the most important part of this is that we've made um, we've made that a really competitive um, piece of funding because um, you get an actual sort of livable stipend, which um, we we've noticed was um, was really tough actually, and it, it makes a lot of difference to the mental health of of our PhD students who might you know, who might be working second jobs to, to keep up um, with their funding or, or you know, taking additional loans, whereas um, now we have a really healthy, livable um, stipend that people can apply for, um, as well as full coverage for four years of um, university fees um, at UK rates. Um, and additionally to those, um, we've got some additional funds covering career development um, that can be used for attending conferences, training courses, lab visits, um, or or as well. So um, we're hoping that uh, these will be um, a lot more a lot more competitive and, and hopefully offer some real support. And, uh, so can, can I just can I just jump <laughs> in with some questions then yeah. about the PhD shoot sitch? So if I remember this rightly, I'm, I should pull up the web page which makes this easier. So you there are three separate schemes. There's the PhD studentships, the clinical training partnerships and the clinical and healthcare professional training partnerships. Studentships, this, so this isn't something, so I've just finished my MSc, uh, I fancy doing a PhD, but it's a topic that I'm choosing. I couldn't apply to that scheme. It, this is one for, for people who want to supervise PhD students to apply to get funding to then hire some PhD students. So it depends. Um, you can do that route, as in um, supervisors can apply for that funding. Um, when when you apply to the program itself, all all applications have to be um, submitted by supervisors. But if you were a master's student who was really really keen to do a PhD in dementia related research, um, you would just need to find a supervisor who who runs in a sort of topic. Search. I see. So it can be top down and bottom up. So as a supervisor, you might think. I've got a great idea. I'm going to go and try and get some funding to have a PhD student come and do a particular project. Or if you're out there and you've already got an idea in mind and you'd like PhD funding, you'd need to find a supervisor and then persuade that person to apply uh, to for funding, which they then use for you. Yes, exactly. Great. And the clinical training partnership. So there's two ways to do this either. So that can be something you apply for as an individual. 
Yes. Or or as an organization. Yes. Exactly. Hopefully, um, there's an option for for everyone in terms of clinicians and healthcare professionals. Um, whether you have have a little bit more flexibility in um in your NHS trust, who, and um, they're supportive of doing research, and you can apply as as yourself, um, with an institution, or if you're an institution who's looking to host, um, more clinical research, um, you can attract people. That would so, be- so typically, um, the clinical training partnerships. So this isn't something that's just aimed at doctors, is it? No, no. This is um, all kinds of people. Anyone from, um, as I said, uh, a clinical or allied health professional background. So um, we have a few running at the moment that include occupational therapists, nurses, all kinds of people that come together to to do this research. So psychologists, nurses, OTs, physios, speech and language therapists, people from... and. is there like do you have to have been in that job for a period of time you know what if you've only you're kind of still a junior doctor although of course they're all junior doctors nowadays but um do you have to have been in that job for a period of time before you think about a clinical training partnership um we only ask that um that you've completed all of your relevant examinations um, but other than that, no, it can be sort of anyone who comes in and has a really great idea and thinks they're the best place to do that. So you can jump into this if, even if you're straight out of kind of, you know, in the first few months, straight out of university as a student nurse, you could go straight into that as a uh, as a research career option. So if you've just started in the NHS and you've just done a year there and thinking, oh, my goodness, this isn't quite what I expected. This This would be perfect for you. Not that I'm sure that there's anybody listening like that. Yeah, as I said, as long as you've done your training um, and, and you have your registered membership, we're, we're welcome to, to apply and happy to take you. And do you need the support of your organisation? Do they have to sign off on this or is this something? So you, you would need um, a supervisor, so someone who can um, can watch over and make sure that you've got the support you need um, in place to, to complete the, the award. But... Um, yeah, we just were looking for for teams that really want to support clinical researchers come in and, and do some really great work. And goodness knows we need it. And and just, I mean, this is thinking off the top of my head here, but and, uh, but if you are in the situation where you want to apply for that and you don't currently have a an immediate supervisor in mind and you need a little bit of help, uh, by all means, we have a WhatsApp group where you can join and um, they can talk and perhaps recommend somebody. And I'm sure if they reached out to you through your um, inquiries account, you might be able to advise people a little bit on that as well. Definitely. Great. And then as an as an organization, so when you when a supervisor might want to apply, is there a limit on how many they can apply for? Um, we don't actually have a limit to how many you can apply for, but I suppose there's an issue um, there about competition and um, whether or not there's um, is enough funding to go around, A, um, and, and B, whether or not, um, I suppose, there are other competitive applications in the process that might outcompete you. So we don't have a formal limit, but um, it's unlikely that I suppose you'd be funded for all of your PhDs if you applied for more than one. Right. So don't edge your bets. <laughs> and it's wonderful that you've increased that stipend as well, because cost of the cost of living's rising. Um, and, and so you've increased the money people are going to get in their pockets as well to to 
keep themselves going during this period of studentship. Oh yeah, we we totally understand the the sort of pressures that one faces while living, and um, not just in London but around the country, and how much just how how little funding was on offer for for student stipends in the past. So we really wanted to make sure that. They could spend all of their time focusing on their research and and doing the best work possible, and, and not have to worry about the, whether or not they were going to have um, meals that weren't just cheese sandwiches, or um, or having some social life outside of um, their work. Which is incredibly important and great that this, of course, we have a wonderful UK university system where we know that there's dementia research happening pretty much in every every university across the country i know we always think i mean i'm biased because i work at ucl and we always think about big places like ucl and imperial and kings and you know places like that but um there's so much happening elsewhere in the country as well so it doesn't matter where you are and it's great that alzheimer's society really do fund across the uk so this isn't this isn't only for england right this is for people in wales northern ireland scotland um, we find it in all parts of the United Kingdom. Great. Okay. Um, I think that's enough for PhD studentships. But if you've got questions that haven't been um, raised in that little bit of a chat there, um, save them up to the end and you'll be able to click the little, you see the bottom of your screen, you've got a heart. Um, and in the left hand side, you've got a request to speak button. You can press that request to speak button and we'll enable your microphone to take your questions later on. And if you like what you hear, I think it's always motivating. If you click that little heart, you can see some, you can give us a clap or a, a wave. Um, so do, do that if you like what you're hearing. Uh, thank you very much uh, for talking us through those, Sophie. Um, Jenny, tell us about fellowships. Hi. Um, yeah, we've got three fellowships uh, on offer. So these are quite different to what we have previously offered. Um, and we've kind of broadened the, the space a little bit that we now cover with our fellowships. So um, for our very early career researchers, we're opening a postdoctoral fellowship. So this is up to four years uh, working on a project with the support and guidance of a supervisor. We've designed this so that it's actually it's the postdoctoral fellow who will be the lead applicant on this. So um, it's to allow the fellow to then gain some um, some grant writing experience and kind of give their CV a little boost to say that they have brought in this grant funding as well. Um, this is open for from final year PhD. So um, we would expect the applicant to have um, finished their PhD by the time they started the grant. But if they know that that's going to happen, then they can always apply uh, whilst they are still completing their PhD. Um, and so we've designed this round um, and this fellowship to allow postdocs to gain more career boosting skills. So um, like I said, this is like bringing in large grant funding and um, but also skills training um, and it comes with the career support budget that we're also offering our PhD students um, and this also comes with a an overseas secondment option so that we wanted to offer that kind of level of skills training as well so we will um, offer some funding 
to um, try and facilitate that and to allow that to happen so you can go away and learn new techniques or get experience in another lab. Um, this was kind of to address one of the issues that was raised in our roundtable discussion, saying that kind of that flexible approach and that attitude within academia that you have to go overseas and you have to get this experience from other labs uh, isn't always possible, um, especially if people have families or they have care commitments or there might be health issues that prevent them from being able to do that. So kind of the shorter stint, we think, um, might enable more people to be able to take advantage of that and to progress their careers through that. Um, we're also we've also included an optional summer internship. So um, this is kind of based similar to our undergraduate research bursaries that we used to offer, which was a summer studentship. Um, and we've brought this into our postdoctoral fellowship for um, two reasons. One, to allow the postdoctoral fellow to gain some supervisor experience. We know that not all postdocs are allowed or have been are permitted by their PIs to supervise summer students. Um, but we also want to address one of the issues that was raised during the COVID pandemic. So uh, we know that people that have just graduated or have graduated in the past couple of years haven't necessarily had research experience. Um, they would have missed out on that as labs were closed throughout the summers or they were closed throughout their final year when they would usually undertake a research project. So we've kind of broadened this from our undergraduate research bursary to turn it into a research internship because we hope then that people who may have graduated recently um, might still be interested in research and if they can take advantage of one of these opportunities there's still a chance that they could kind of come back and get a little bit of research experience rather than just targeting it at current undergraduates. Then moving on to more senior researchers um, we have the Dementia Research Leaders Fellowship so this is our longest fellowship uh, and provides up to five years of funding that we hope will um, allow researchers um, to progress into more permanent research positions from this. So um, we're offering quite a bit of support along with this as well. Um, again, we've designed this in response to issues that have been raised previously from the fellows that we've spoken to. So um, one of the key issues that were raised when we spoke to them was that they have a lack of time to apply for funding to build their research team. Like, as a fellow, you spend so much time teaching, you spend so much time writing grants, writing papers and focusing on your own research as well. Obviously, that's key to it, um, that you don't necessarily have the time to to go out and to get some um, employ some research staff that will help you and will help to alleviate some of the some of the work that you need to get done. Um, so our DRL fellowship now comes with a fully funded PhD studentship, um, or this could be equivalent costs towards research support staff, just to help our fellows kind of get a little bit of a step and get their, their research groups off the ground. Um, and finally, we have our Daphne Jackson Fellowship. We've spoken about this a lot. We're very proud of this. Um, so this is an opportunity for researchers who have been forced to leave research or have felt that they were forced to leave research due to uh, health or care reasons um, and allow them to return to their research careers. Um, so we're really keen to support skilled and talented individuals re-enter research. Um, it's a great loss that you should be forced to leave, quite frankly. Um, and it's a great loss to the research community. So we'd like to make this process as easy as possible and to offer the support and guidance that uh, returning researchers might need. And the Daphne Jackson Trust have an excellent reputation for this. And um, so this, this grant comes not just with funding, but there's the extensive support that is provided by the Daphne Jackson Trust as well. 
And we so we want to ensure that our fellows don't find themselves in a sink or swim situation when they return to dementia research. And we think that um, our partnership with the Daphne Jackson Trust will will really, really help with that. So um, we've been very mindful throughout the design process to make sure that our fellowships offer career support um, as well as funding. And I, I think I like to think anyway that we've kind of incorporated that into all three of our fellowship schemes. Great. Okay. Are you ready? I've got questions. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, the the first scheme, the postdoctoral fellowship, is the equivalent of kind of your old school junior, what you might call the junior fellowship, or other programs might call it that. Is that right? So this is the one you should apply for as perhaps as your first postdoc or if you've been doing or if you're just coming to the end of your PhD or if you've maybe only been a postdoc for a year or two that's the scheme you might consider. Possibly um, we've not put any years post PhD limits to any of our grants um, so I kind of I, I would like to move away from the idea that you might have only had you, you might have had like one postdoc or you might be so many years post PhD so I, I, do you know what, can I just jump in there to completely support you on that? Because I think this is the problem is, is when you have a junior postdoc, junior fellowship and then a senior fellowship, if you haven't then got something else to go to, would you just carry on in those roles? I mean, I think the I, that, that kind of breaks it down to suggest that there's a, a fixed period of time that you'd be a postdoc before you progress on, which, of course, we know in reality it's not like that. You could be a postdoc for quite a long time. Um, so well done on that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, kind of the way that that we've kind of viewed this is not so much oh you're this many years post PhD, but you're in that postdoctoral stage, but not ready yet to apply for the senior fellowships. So the postdoctoral fellowship is kind of designed to help you get that skills boost, that CV boost that would then allow you to be able to apply for a more senior fellowship. So if you've already, let's just give you a scenario if you've already had one fellowship which was a say a two or three year fellowship <coughs> apologies um you you could still apply for that you could still apply for that one yes there you go perfect and um you mentioned before the increase in bursary um on our phd studentships have you looked at that for the fellowships as well absolutely great so you're going to pay more as well and well done, big pat on the back for making this four years. I think I incorrectly tweeted that it was five because somebody told me five, but it's it's a four-year fellowship, funding for four years. The postdoctoral fellowship is for four years. The Dementia Research Leaders is for five. That's exciting. And <laughs> and with so for the four-year programme, um, I, I gather there's it's not just money to cover your salary, there's money to actually do stuff as well. So you don't have to get the fellowship and then spend the next six months applying for funding to do actual research. No, it comes with a research and consumables budget as well. So research and consumable budget, bigger bursary and a career support budget. That sounds is that new? Um, it's something that we have continually offered um, on many of our grants, um, our PhD studentships as well. Um, we have kind of we've leveled it across our grant offer um, and we've increased it a little bit just to um, allow people to be able to attend some more conferences and we know that, that kind of the costs of attending these conferences can get quite high especially if it's like a keynote or something quite niche um, so 
yeah, it's it's something that we have we've always offered, um, but we've kind of highlighted it a bit more now to make sure that people know that 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 money is available. Wonderful. And am I right in thinking? So these aren't clinical, are they? Clinical. Um, the postdoctoral fellowships are open to well, they can be open to clinical staff. Um, we do have some other grants though um, that are. <sighs> Yeah, they are open to postdoctoral fe- <laughs> to um, <laughs> clinical staff as well. Um, we would be open to discussions. Um, we know that clinical staff at different levels um, can have some quite high salaries associated with them as well. Um, we're very open to discussion with anyone who might be applying from a clinical background um, to talk about what their grant application would look like and will help them in any way we can. That's great, because I know from talking to quite a few clinical doctoral candidates that when they finish their doctorate, they do feel a little bit. So, I mean, obviously, there are various programs in the NIHR they can apply for, but making that transition from a clinical doctorate, you know, is, is quite a tricky one. So great that you're looking at that, too. And the senior, the not senior, sorry, leadership fellowship. So who would typically apply for that? So this is somebody who's already had some fellowships before this probably wouldn't be the first fellowship you'd apply for out of your PhD no we'd expect this to and um, we'd expect applicants for the dementia research leadership fellow that um they'd have they would have had previous junior fellowships and um, this is kind of seen as a stepping stone to becoming like an established um and salaried researcher within a research institution and part of this is that we actually expect a written um kind of commitment from the research institution um of them helping with a career plan and with the career development of the fellow to help them um in that path right and you apply for those both of these you apply for as an individual yes great and then the daphne uh, so others i'm sure who've been listening will be familiar with the daphne jackson trust they've got these great um, programs to try and encourage uh, people from different backgrounds so is is this this is to encourage perhaps um, people who may have left to start a family and then return is that is that in the scheme or is that a separate one I know they have one like that yeah at the moment um, the Daphne Jackson Trust only offer fellowships well I, yeah it would be for people that have left to start a family sorry that was my bad um it's for kind of co- like care commitments and for healthcare reasons so those are the kind of the two primary reasons for leaving research that this grant will cover great so you could actually theoretically apply for the Daphne Jackson and the postdoctoral fellowship as well couldn't you you could apply for both and it's your bets. <laughs> I, I love asking, I'm asking you all these awkward questions. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm just going to save you getting these questions later on from, from our email. Yeah, it's fine. Um, yes, you could in theory. Um, it's the one thing that I would say is that the Daphne Jackson Trust have just such a good reputation to help people to return to research. It comes with such a level of support that... I'm not sure that from the society perspective, we would be able to match. Yeah. So as a returner, realistically, you would be offered a lot more support, a lot more help, a lot more guidance by going through the Daphne Jackson Fellowship. But in theory, yes, you could apply to both. Okay. And um, we've talked a little, you mentioned there about the internship 
um, program. So is this something you, um, I, I don't think I fully understood? So would you allocate interns or do they do you find them? Do they find them? Uh, no, this would be open to the fellow to find them. Um, a lot of um, institutions and universities have kind of internal ways of um, recruiting summer studentships because I know that a lot of um, universities and research institutes have their own summer internship schemes. So um, it could be through that that they look to find these internships or through social media, through through other ways as well. But it would be down to the fellow to find their intern. Okay, and so what what's that got to do with the fellowship then? How how does that become part of the fellowship? Is that because you're going to then train them to be supervisors, or that you pay somebody? Um, well, because this will be part of the postdoctoral um the postdoctoral fellow. So the postdoctoral fellow has a supervisor in themselves. Uh, it's similar to you would get if you were a postdoc um working under a, a project grant. So it would then create kind of three levels of of like supervision, really, uh, within the team. So there would be a general supervisor or like a PI that would supervise the, the fellow. Um, and then the fellow would be considered the supervisor or the day-to-day -day supervisor of the research in intern. So this is it's a 10-week summer project um, that just provides that kind of supervisory and that teaching experience that some postdocs um, don't get the experience or don't get the opportunity to take advantage of. Great, which leads me nicely actually into, because I, I believe I'm, I'm going to ask you about the career development grants as well, because this is, I don't remember seeing specific career development grants in the past. So what, you've got three of these two. Tell us about these three grants, it's all on you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Um, so this is something brand new that we're bringing in to the mix. Um, so again, this is in response to um, the feedback that we've got um, from some of our researchers who have said that they found it difficult to find the time to build their own research idea. Uh, so if they're a postdoc um, and they've tried, they're often tied to a project um, that their supervisor is kind of running um, and they're not always allowed the freedom to pursue their own research ideas. So um, this can be a particular issue within the clinical sphere because there's the additional challenge that many can't find dedicated time away from their clinical research, uh, from their clinical work, sorry, uh, to do research. Um, or many don't even get an opportunity to kind of try out research within kind of biomedical um, environment, specifically just speaking from my own experience. Um, I know you get the opportunity to do research projects and you kind of get that taster of research, but you don't always get that within um, clinical training. So uh, we've designed these schemes to try and uh, kind of fill these gaps and to um, provide some support for uh, what well, kind of more short term support for ECRs. Um, the Career Development Grant is open to all research staff, so this is the more generalised Career Development gra uh, Grant, so it's open to all research staff post-PhD, uh, and it provides a year of funding to allow the grant holder to, to build up their own research idea, so this could be like kind of collecting some pilot data, this could be like generating their, their research idea that could be the basis for a future fellowship or the next kind of, the next big grant that they hope to bring in. Um, We've kind of designed them again to be kind of a bit CV boosting too. So this comes with the same secondment and internship funding as the postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and there are also two other clinical focused career development grants. So th these kind of these target areas that are 
kind of more niche to the clinical sphere. Um, the pre-doctoral clinical bursary allows clinical staff, and um, this includes the nurses, allied health, health professionals, and um, kind of anyone within the clinical sphere, really, um, to take on a six-month project within dementia research. So kind of this would be part-time alongside their clinical commitments, uh, just to see if it's a career that they'd like to pursue and to give them that, that clinical experience. Uh, and we've also created a specific post CCT option. So this is for clinicians who've really uh, received their certificate of completion of training. So um, these are kind of these are quite senior um, clinical uh, clinicians. Um, and this kind of provides the same opportunities for them um, as the the more standard um, career development grant and gives them some dedicated research time to allow them to build up a research idea and to to gather some data and to kind of just help them and get on to the next stage of their career development. So in there you've got some great schemes which are going to address this issue about attract both attracting and retaining people but in a in a short-term kind of way so if you're a a nurse out there that's got a great idea for a project you're not quite ready though to take on the commitment of a five-year part-time phd you could apply for funding for this pre-doctoral clinical bursary do a six-month project do some research methodology learn learn some new skills try out a research project and see if you want to then do that doctorate yeah absolutely that's that's a great skill. I'm not aware of there being anything like that. I mean, even the NIHR's research for pay for benefit programs and things like that, which offer similar funding. But how how quickly do you expect those to be delivered? Is this something that would can people plan for like next year? I know the grant rounds have all got deadlines in July, August. Is when would you expect those to start? Um. We would expect them to start in kind of maybe spring next year, um, just because there wasn't a lot we could do about the length of the grant process. It takes as long as it takes to make sure that we have have a good grant review process. Um, but we will be awarding funding in March. Um, and so we expect people to start in, as I said, June-ish. Um, but the funding is people are open to start from 12 months of the award from March. Awesome. So that that's a really exciting, unique program that I think would be a great segue into a, a clinical or um, normal uh, uh, into a clinical research career. Well, well done for coming up with that. Um, and the career development grant. This So this is this addresses that kind of point I raised earlier about people who've done their done their doctorate and haven't yet worked out what comes next yeah absolutely or just if people have a kind of research idea they've been really wanting to try and push they've not had that freedom within previous postdoctoral positions to be able to do that because they've been committed to a different project and this kind of gives them that opportunity to just spend a year working on kind of a smaller project that then could be the basis of something bigger uh, and then will hopefully kind of bring some new ideas into the to the sphere as well so if you're if you're in the last say six to twelve months of a of a fellowship right now and haven't got the next thing sorted out, is that something you could apply for? Yeah. Great. 
there's going to be a lot of people listening to this now who are kind of still chasing around applying for the fellowship. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the, exactly perfect for somebody who might even you might apply for the, the research leader fellowship and the career development grant because you might not get one, but you could get the other. Am, yeah. am I giving out all bad bad rules now? But I think <laughs> thinking of all those awkward scenarios that nobody had thought of. Um, and then, of course, the post CCP Career Development Award is is wonderful as well to um, move towards that independence. Thank you very much, uh, Jenny. That's that's great. And project grants, of course, project grants. So you've got some big big. <clears throat> pots suitcases full of cash to give out for some big clever project grants as well yeah exactly so we have um these grants can be up to four hundred thousand. um but that's not to say that um you have to spend all of that because i know a lot of the times um people assume that project grants are only um massive pieces of funding but um it also can range from anything from pilot funding, springboard, seed funding, um, all the way up to the sort of like larger scale 400,000 pound grants. Um, so but I wanted to make that clear because I know not everyone um, not everyone knows that. Um, well, it nicely simplifies it, doesn't it? Because I know other funders might break it down to like pilot grants and pro- different projects, but you've just, it's just a single one, it's project grants, whether it's a pilot you're applying for or a springboard or seed funding or a, building off the back of a pilot you did last year that's the grant you'd apply for exactly so this isn't funding for people this is fun so it, i think you had to have a contract which was for the length of the funding yeah which i which i know can be an issue because if you're a a fellow applying for this and you've only got a year left on your fellowship it immediately makes you ineligible to apply for for these larger grants yeah, it, it, it's definitely a challenge. We we are encouraging um, early career researchers um, to apply as co-applicants and to so that they can get experience of being involved in these larger project grants and applying for funding. But we do need someone with a, a sort of longer term contract to be able to um, award the grant. OK, um, I think we've lost Sophie altogether now. Perhaps she's dropping out and we don't know. She's just gone as a speaker. I'm going to bring her back in as a speaker. Come on. There we go. Hey, Sophie. My apologies. We lost... That's all right. We, we lost you as you were telling us that you needed to have a contract, which was the period of the grant. Yeah, sorry. My, I'm, I'm at home today. And my wife isn't very good. That's okay. <laughs> Um, but I heard, I heard Catherine cover a bit of that at the end, um, just about our, our commitment and focus to early career researchers and uh, encouraging all applications to include um, early career researchers as, as co-applicants or investigators. Yeah. Um, and then they don't have to have a contract that's for the full period as long as the, the lead does. Exactly. So if you're out there and you're thinking about applying for a project grant, you need to um, find somebody to apply with you if you're still uh, on that ECR program, on that kind of ECR um, career path. This is wonderful. Um, we've already taken, we're, we're all, I can guarantee we're going over time already. Um, Catherine, I'm going to come to you now because I know you've changed the application process as well. 
tell us about the which to make it better for people not just to make it more complicated <laughs> um, hopefully not <laughs> tell us about the application process and what you've done to the process yeah so I'll, I'll just give a really quick overview I mean just to signpost people to our website and the lovely team here to answer like really specific questions because I appreciate we've we've really overloaded you with lots of information and lots of changes. Um, but I think the big news in terms of our application process and the sort of biggest impact to applicants is that we are now introducing an outline stage for our applications. Um, so previously we asked for everything all at once and we only had one deadline, but now we're, we're introducing this outline stage um, to hopefully speed up the process and sort of streamline things for all involved. So initially for that outline, we'll only be asking applicants to submit um, a three-page outline, so two pages scientific and one page lay. Um, and the deadline for that is soon. So um, the deadline for outlines is the 15th of August. But I think what we're really keen to stress is that that's a outline is the word, you know, it's only two pages. We just want a vision, um, some really inspiring ideas. You know, it is its top line to really sell your idea to the grant advisory board for them to sort of pick you. And then you'll have a lot of time after that to work up your proposal in more detail. Um, so we hope that by doing it this way, we'll, you know, we'll be able to communicate decisions much more quickly to applicants. And those that sadly are unsuccessful, you find out, you know much sooner you don't waste your time you're not in limbo for ages um and those you know as i said for those are lucky to be shortlisted you do have um more time to work up your proposals that's great i mean that's that's what we're looking for right you because there's nothing more uh, frustrating than spending a significant amount of time working on a fellowship application that that appears to just be rejected out of hand or just wasn't quite fitting the remit um, and then you've spent all that time on it. So, yeah, that's... exactly. And, you know, previously, you know, because we we extensively peer and laid review all applications that came through to us, people were waiting a really long time for outcomes just because it took us, you know, understandably quite a while to do that. Um, and, you know, people got feedback as, a re you know, quite detailed feedback as a result of that. But, you know, I appreciate that if you've waited six months to find out you haven't made it, it's it's pretty painful. Uh... And I know Alzheimer's Society um, are very strong and very firm supporters in making sure that there's good patient and public involvement and people with lived experiences input into both um, partnering up with the grants after they've been awarded to, to keep in touch with them and in yep. the decision making process and yeah. before they even apply. I assume you'd, you'd strongly encourage people applying for pretty much any of these schemes to to get some involvement and to make sure that these are research projects that people really will benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. And we're really, you know, we're not diluting that message. And I think, you know, we've always, um, you know, strongly believed that whether your application is, you know, really looking at basic science through to really applied clinical or sort of care focused research, you know, there's there's a huge role that people affected by dementia can play in helping shape your research even if it's just in terms of how you're pitching it and how you're explaining it um and how you're contextualizing it in sort of the wider field and and you uh, well outside society parkinson's uk and i know uclhbrc where i am um you've produced the toolkit for patient engagement in uh, biomedical research as well 
which yeah. um, I can put a link to in the show notes, which suggests PPI activities even um, at a basic science uh, level. Absolutely. Uh, and we've, we've got resources on our website. And, you know, if, if you just don't know where to start, just contact the team and we can sort of signpost you to various things or put you in touch with um, people that would, you know, be relevant to your to your research. I think particularly those projects we mentioned before, though, those um, the ones for the clinicians who are interested in doing a six months research project um, in their workplace, um, for example, that getting good ppi and input into those would be valuable yeah absolutely right um it's time for questions to explain how this works in the bottom left hand corner of your screen i don't know if we'll get any because people are always a little bit shy don't be shy we'll only turn your microphone on for a few seconds while you ask your question um so it's uh, if you have a question um in the bottom left hand corner of your screen you will see a little button that says request to speak uh, you're very welcome to request to speak. We'll unmute your microphone. Um, pe please keep it civil and, and on topic uh, and ask your question as succinctly as you can. Um, and then we'll we'll mute you back up while we put the question to our panel. So if anybody has a question, you can tap the request to speak now. Um, I honestly, while we're waiting for anybody to do that, I think I've already put you on all under the spotlight <laughs> enough with my questions. Um, but uh, is this so the grant deadlines are July and August. Is that right? Anybody can take that. You almost know. <laughs> we should all know. <laughs> um, the outline deadline is the 15th of August, um, but we'll be opening the calls. So the calls aren't actually open at the moment, but all the details are online. Um, and then the schemes um, are open for applications on the 27th of June. 27th of June. Great. Um, OK, well, it doesn't look like we actually have any questions. So uh, I, I think, honestly, we've already come up to our time limit, so this is probably all we've got time for today. But before we go, there's uh, a few things to perhaps a few notices. Um, we'd like to let you know that Alzheimer's Society have an applicant webinar as well on the Thursday, the 23rd of June from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, if you check their Twitter feed, which is Al's Sock Research, which uh, you'll see listed at the top as the co-host for this spaces discussion today give them a follow and i'm sure as soon as details on how to register for that webinar release they'll put the joining details there um is that is that right catherine does that yeah perfect thank you yeah great so you've got the webinar there as well um and of course if you have any questions that you didn't want to speak out loud or if you're listening to this from the recording and you didn't manage to make the live session today you can dm your questions on the grants uh, throughout July um, to their Twitter account, which is at Al's Sock Research. And of course, you can email them to researchinquiries at alzheimers.org.uk. And if you are one of those people that's looking potentially for somebody's suggestions on who might be a supervisor for your own research idea, or you have questions, or if you're wanting somebody to have a quick scan over the outline application you're writing, we have an amazing uh, WhatsApp community at Dementia Researcher. So if you'll find 
details on how to get involved in that on our website. And of course, Dementia Research website, you'll also find listings for all the latest funding calls from research funders across the UK. Um, and we have tons of resources as well and blogs and podcasts on how to write a great grant application. So check those out at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and there's a link in our bio. Thank you very much, um, the brilliant Jenny, the amazing Catherine and the awesome Sophie for taking time out of your day to join us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. That's all right. Great. <laughs> um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, be sure to subscribe to our website uh, in YouTube and in your favourite podcast app. And um, we'll make this recording available straight away later today. Thank you very much.